All right, so this morning we're going to uh, take a look at the end of um, Gideon's life. We've taken two weeks to cover his life. He's one of the major characters along with Samson, who we'll get into in a few weeks. But we're going to see the end of his life, and we're going to see how the end of his life leads to what comes up next. And the, the title for this week's lesson is just simply The Man Who Would Be King. Now, the way I want to preface this is that... Um, this week and next week, especially, we're going to see this movement towards um, the people wanting a king. And sometimes we think that um, it was wrong for Israel to ever have a king, want a king. But the truth is, God had planned for Israel to have a king. God, God was not surprised by their request for a king. And so I want to read you. This is from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Long before they got into the land... And this is what God says. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the, all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. Now, that's the qualifier. All right. You may, in other words, he's giving permission. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. This is key. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And then he goes on and tells him when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, the Mosaic law. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and by doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So God had clearly planned on Israel having a king, right? And it's important that Israel have a king because... If Israel doesn't have a king or doesn't have kings, David would never have come along. And if David had never come along, guess who else wouldn't have come along? Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of David, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So this whole idea of them having a king was planned by God. But we're going to see today that they're going to approach this thing in the wrong way uh, from the get-go. Long before there is a first king at least one that God wants, David. We've got men who want to be king. And it's always dangerous when men want to be king. Whether it's king of your home, king of your castle, king of your work, king of anything, um, it's always kind of dangerous because we don't fully understand that role. So last week we looked at Gideon, or actually the last two weeks, and we saw that this guy was just like you and me. He's just a guy. He's just a man. And he made lots of mistakes um, but he also did some things that have some value, at least in God's eyes. So he had fear, but he also had faith. I had a guy come up to me uh, Tuesday night at Bible study, and he goes, why in the world is Gideon in the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11? And he said, he, you know, the guy just was a loser. He just was a bozo. And I said, well, so are all the other characters in that chapter. Look at Abraham. Abraham is in there, but, you know, heck, he slept with his wife's maidservant. And the hopes of producing a male because he didn't believe God was going to do it. And yet he's called a man of faith. 
Uh, and I said, they're all flawed characters. You've got Samson in there. You've got Barak in there. You've got David in there who murdered a man so he could marry his wife, and yet they're in the hall of faith. They're not perfect people. But the key characteristic they all share is what? Faith. And the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews, and chapter 11 in particular, is to show us that it's always been about faith. It's not about your exploits. It's not about what you do. It's about faith. So this guy had faith. And we saw that when he was clothed by the Spirit, he accomplished great things. God used him. But we also saw that there was a point in time when the Holy Spirit left him, and he ended up operating in the flesh, which didn't go well, did it? You know, when he started doing things Gideon's way, everything starts going south. It starts taking a really bad turn to the left. And it reminds me of Galatians chapter 5. God says, so let the, or Paul says, so let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature, your flesh, craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. So these two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. You've got this battle going on. We, we have the Holy Spirit living within us, and it's there. he's there permanently. Um, and so we, it, even with that, even with his permanent presence, I can get up every morning and decide to listen to him or ignore him. I can choose to live according to my sinful desires or the Spirit's desires. It's a choice. We make it every day in every different kind of way. And it goes on and says this, and I want you to look at this list, and I want you to think about Gideon. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, your flesh, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. And I know what you're doing. You're going through the list like it's a test. Okay, and you're going, mm, okay, I'm okay in that one. Oh, that one, oh. I got four out of whatever, 17. Okay, that's, it's not a test, it's a description of life in the flesh. And I've bolded the ones that I think apply to Gideon. Gideon, when he lived in the flesh, obviously had a problem with idolatry. And we're going to see it this morning. He had a problem with hostility. He killed a thousand of his own people because they wouldn't feed his troops. He's got problems with quarreling. He's got problems with outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, as we'll see this morning. So Gideon, when he lived according to the flesh, produced this kind of fruit rather than the fruit of the Spirit. And the same thing is true of you and I. So this thing about kingship, um, one of the problems with kingship then as now is we tend to want to play God. And God never intended for kings to be a replacement for him. They were to be under him, just like priests were under God. And we sometimes think that we're more important than God. And that's really going to be the story this morning as we look at the life of Gideon and then Abimelech, his son. See, for Israel, God was to be their king. He always had been their king. He was sovereign. He was ruler over all. He had chosen them. He had protected them. He had brought them out of the land of Egypt. He had given them the land they were living in. It was his land. They were stewards of that land, and they operated according to his law. See, as soon as they got in there, he had already given them his law. Here's how you relate to me. Here's how you relate to one another in my land. 
And so he's the king, he's the sovereign, and they are his people. At least that's the way it was supposed to be. And he'd even made a covenant with them. And this is important as we get into the passage this morning. They had a covenant relationship with God. What kind of covenant? Well, it was a bilateral, conditional covenant. In other words, he had his part that he would do, and they had their part they had to do. It's an if and then covenant. If you do these things, I will bless you. If you don't do these things, I will curse you. They had to keep their end of the bargain. But they had and had agreed to a covenant with God. What God? Yahweh, God Almighty. And yet we're going to see that this, this people group, the Israelites, are going to become dissatisfied with God, the king. And they're going to want a different kind of king, their own king. And that is going to be, from God's perspective, perspective, insurrection. Now think about this. If you're God looking down on a people group that you chose, that you made, that you created, that you redeemed, that you blessed in incredible ways, and they suddenly decide you're not enough, how would you react? Well, I would see that as insurrection. I would see that as insubordination, and I would deal with it just like God's going to deal with it because he sees it as insurgency. You're you're not just forsaking me, you're turning against me. And remember, we've talked a lot about uh, Gideon's name given to him by his dad as Jeroboam, contends with Baal. Baal simply means Lord. Gideon's real problem was he was contending with God Almighty. Our problem is we contend with God Almighty, and we don't even know it. And so we're going to see that everything the Israelites are doing in this story, and even as we move further into the book of Judges is all about insurgency, insurrection, as they begin to demand a king. What kind of king? A king like all the other nations. What kind of king? A man, a human, flesh and blood king. Because here's the problem with God. You can't see him. You can't hang out with him. He doesn't have a throne you can walk up to. You don't see his power. You don't see his majesty. It's the same reason Jesus Christ was not accepted as king because he didn't look like a king. He shows up in Jerusalem with 12 losers, and he doesn't dress like a king, act like a king. He doesn't have a kingly retinue. He doesn't have on royal robes. He's not wearing a crown. He's not on a white horse. And so the people of Israel just said, this can't be our king. He doesn't look like a king. And the same thing's true of God. I can't see God. And so the people of Israel, just like you and I, we're we're earthly creatures, and we're used to seeing things that we can touch and feel and relate to, and God is not that. And so they begin to demand a king. So I want to fast forward and just briefly look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel is written by Samuel. Samuel is a prophet, but he's also the last of the judges. He's not in the book of Judges. It's believed that he probably wrote the book of Judges, but he's the last of the judges. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel is going to have a conversation with God. And it's because the people of Israel are going to come to him and they're going to demand from him that he give them a king. They want a king. They're tired of judges, they're tired of deliverers, and they want a king. So here's what happens. All the elders of Israel gather together. They come to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, Behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." Now, Samuel's going to get upset with that because Samuel's a judge. He's a deliverer. He's a ruler. And he takes offense at this, personal offense at this, because they're basically saying, we don't want you and we don't want your sons. 
We want a king. We want a real king, a king like all the nations. Remember, we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God said, when you get into the land and you ask for a king, make sure you ask for this kind of king, the kind of king I want, not the kind of king you want. Well, it goes on. God knows Samuel's heart. He knows Samuel's upset. And he says, hey, Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. You're not the issue here, Samuel. They have rejected me from being king over them. See, that's the issue. They don't want me to be their king. They're not satisfied with me being their king. So go ahead and give them exactly what they want. Now, what did they get? They got Saul. They got Saul. Saul looked like a king, smelled like a king, walked like a king, and he acted like a king. What kind of king? Like all the other nations. He did not fit the description God gave in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And he ended up being a lousy king. And he ended up getting replaced by God with David. But in chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, God says this to Israel as by way of reminder, hey guys, you want a king, and you only want a king because you're trying to replace me as your king, but don't forget, I'm the one who brought you up out of, Israel, out of Egypt to Israel. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. I'm the one you're rejecting as not only your king, you're now rejecting me as your God. And that is huge. See, their demand for a king was not just that they wanted an earthly king. God knew their hearts. You don't want me to rule over you. You don't want me to be your God. You want this guy, whoever it is, to be your God. But yet God says, I'm the one who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And yet you have said... Set a king over us. See, God is taking personal affront, and rightfully so, because the people are rejecting him. And what I want you to walk away with, if you walk away with nothing else, walk away with this, that when we try to play God, and that's exactly what the people of Israel are doing, when we try to play God in our lives, it never turns out well. Here's some news. You make a lousy God. You do. You make a lousy God. I make a lousy God. And yet every day I try to play God. I try to take over and make all the decisions on my own without help from God. I don't consult him. I don't pray about things. I just make my decisions and then I wonder why they turn out bad. See, you're not built to be God. And this idea of wanting a king is really a demand that I want to be God. Because if you're going to place that man on the throne, just like when we vote and we put somebody on in the White House, we are playing God. We know what is best for this country. And I sometimes think God gives us exactly what we deserve. And we may see that again in this next election. See, we are not supposed to play God. So why was Israel coming to this place where they're beginning to demand a king when God had been sending these deliverers who were delivering them over and over again from all the calamities they faced that were of their own doing. Ultimately, they're dissatisfied with God. But why? Why would you ever get dissatisfied with God? Well, it's because God doesn't do things the way you want them done. God doesn't answer your prayers the way you want them answered. God doesn't allow you to do the things that you want to do. He's the cosmic killjoy. And so you just say, I don't want him. I want to be in charge. And so Israel's doing the same thing. And it all begins with Gideon. 
You know, it's fascinating. This same gentleman that asked me why Gideon is in the uh, chapter 11 of, of Hebrews, he said, I got another question. He goes, why do the Gideons International, you know, the, the people who hand out all the Bibles and put them in hotel rooms, why do the Gideons International have Gideon as their poster boy? I went, man, I've never thought about that. And I went to the Gideon website, and if you go to the Gideon website, they have this little paragraph about Gideon. Gideon of the Bible, and it says what a wonderful man he is, and what a wonderful icon and virtue, you know, icon of faith, and how he always did what God wanted him to do, and how he he was a powerful force for God. And I'm thinking, have they read the book of Judges? Now, if you're a Gideon, I'm I'm not throwing you under the bus. I'm just saying, go back and read. Gideon is not an icon of virtue. He's not the epitome of faith. He's a very flawed man. And it all is going to begin with him. So look at verse 22 of chapter 8. We, looked at, we ended with verse 21. And verse 21 basically told us that Gideon, after killing those two Midianite kings, took the golden ornaments off their camels. And we kind of left it there. Well, he had a purpose for doing it. And immediately after he does it, the people of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They want him to be their king. So here it begins. Why do they want him to be their king? Well, they basically say, because you have saved us. Gideon, you saved us. Wait a minute. Did Gideon save them? No, God did. But here's what's really interesting in this passage is that Gideon never stops and goes, whoa, 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 wait, guys, no, 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 no. God saved you. He never says it. Now, he'll say something that sounds very spiritual, but he never gives God the credit and the glory for what God does. So they say, rule over us, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. See, all the credit is going to him. They saw Gideon as their savior, their deliverer, as their conqueror. But what did, when we lost, last saw Gideon, what was Gideon do when the battle was taking place? He was holding a trumpet and a torch and watching the Midianites kill themselves. How in the world is he the deliverer? Now, he did chase the Midianites, and he did kill these two kings, but ultimately, he was not the savior God was, and yet he's getting all the credit. And I picture Gideon doing one of those classic, you know, when people are applauding you or people are, you know, singing your glories, and he's going, no, 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 come on, come on, no, 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 you know, come on. He's, he's sucking it in. He loved, we all love glory, right? We all love to have people praise us. And he's liking it. This is, remember, this guy started out in the bottom of a wine press, the least of his brothers, the least of his clan, and yet now he's getting all the glory of all the people, and he's kind of liking it. I like this deliverer thing. And they're willing to give him their allegiance. There's not a guy in the room who wouldn't like that. There's not a guy in the room that had, hadn't had some dream of catching the winning touchdown pass in a game, even if you never played football. You dreamed of that. You longed for that. You want to hit the, the home run that wins the game in the World Series. You dreamed of that as a kid. We all dream of that. And Gideon loves this. Everybody's sucking up to him. Everybody thinks he's great. But he gives this great answer. This is so spiritual. I will not rule over you. 
My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Man, that sounds so good. And they're like, that's the kind of king we want. That's a Deuteronomy 17 kind of king. But see, at no point does it ever say he didn't become king. And everything in the story is going to reveal that he really was their king. And he liked being their king. And it's going to lead to his son wanting to be king. But Gideon said to them, and this is, gives you an insight into his heart. He goes, let me make a request of you. I don't want to be your king. My son won't be your king. God will be your king. But I do have a request. Let me ask you this. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. Remember, they had chased out the Midianites. They had stolen all their stuff. And now he says, give me some of your spoil. All I want are the earrings that you stole, which gives you some idea of how much spoil they got. It says, for they had golden earrings, but they also had this. It says, we will willingly give you the earrings. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil, and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, 50 pounds of earrings, 50 pounds of gold. I don't know the street value of 50 pounds of gold right now, but I'm telling you, it's a lot. I have no idea what it was like in that day, but this guy suddenly was wealthy. So he had all the accolades of the people, and he's got a cloak full of 50 pounds of gold, and he's suddenly a multimillionaire. You don't think he liked that? You don't think he enjoyed that? You're seeing that something's beginning to happen in this guy. And not only did he get the earrings, they give him crescent ornaments made of gold and pendants and purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. Everything about that line is about royalty. It's about wealth. It's about power. It's about prominence. And the collars that were around the necks of the camels, which he already had. So what's going on here? They see him as their king. He is accepting their accolades and their recognition of him as king. And then it says, then Gideon made an ephod of it, what? The gold. And he puts it in his city, Oprah. What's going on here? Gideon just made an idol. Now that word ephod can be translated as the same, it's the same word used of the ephod worn by the high priest, which was a, a um, plaque that he wore on his chest. It had 12 different colored stones, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. But in this context, it doesn't sound like that's what he made because the word can also mean idol. He just made an idol. Gideon, the deliverer chosen by God, has now made an idol to worship other than God. He's leading the people into idolatry. And look what it says. And this is why it's, it's, I think it's, it's just an idol. It says, all, the, all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So what's going on? Once again, look at this. It. It what? It, the ephod. It, the idol. This idol that Gideon made out of the gold that the people gave him, out of gratitude for his deliverance, which he didn't deliver, they, he makes an idol, and the people whore after it. They worship it. They bow down to it other than God. See, Gideon is already leading the people in the wrong path. But 28 says, so, so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. In other words, the Midianites went away. And so the Israelites didn't have to raise their head anymore, which simply means they didn't have to watch out for Midianites. The Midianites stopped raiding. The Midianites didn't show up anymore. Now, there were still Ammonites. There were still Canaanites. There were still Perizzites, but they didn't have to worry about the Midianites. And the, then it says the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. 
So it looks like things are going well, in spite of the fact that Gideon has become the king, and Gideon has gold, and Gideon has made an idol. But we know that it's become a snare. It's become a problem. He is leading the people of God into further idolatry. And he's, he's basically taking Baal, who they were worshiping. Remember, his dad had an idol built to Baal in his backyard. Well, he's now replaced Baal with his own God. We're not even told the name of this God. It doesn't even have a name. It's like, this tells you how fickle the people of Israel were because he just makes an idol. He sits it up in, sets it up in Ophrah, and they just flock there to worship it, and they don't even know its name. See, that's humanity. That's, we will worship anything that we think might bring value to us. And we don't even have to know its name. We'll just worship it as long as we think we get something out of it. What do they think they're getting out of it? It tells us that he, he ruled over them for 40 years, and that 40 years was marked by peace. Who did they give credit to for the peace? Yahweh? No, Gideon and his ephod. See, we will worship whatever we think brings value to us. If we want peace and we get peace, we'll link that to whatever it is we worship. Our job, our career, our finances, our government, you know, we'll find some reason to keep worshiping whatever it is we're worshiping as long as it brings, it, brings us what we want. But then it tells us that Jeroboam, remember that's his name, contends with Baal, given to him by his dad, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. Just stop there for a second. Is there anything wrong with that line there? Based on what we read from Deuteronomy chapter 17, how in the world do you get 70 sons from one wife? It's impossible, right? This guy had a lot of wives because one woman's not going to bear 70 sons and live to talk about it. So he's got multiple wives, which the king was never supposed to do. And then he's got this concubine. Now, what's a concubine? A concubine is a sex slave. Let's just boil it down. Why in the world does he need a sex slave? He's had enough sex to have 70 kids. It doesn't even mention his daughters. He's had 70 sons. This guy's had a lot of sex, but he's got to have a concubine. And this concubine bears him a son who he names Abimelech. And that name's going to become important in just a second. But he's, a, he's half Shechemite. The Shechemites are not Israelites. So he's got a half-breed son, and he's got 70 other sons. See, everything about this is showing that Gideon has gone down a path that is not the path that God would have. And then he dies. We all die, right? It's going to happen to everybody in this room. And so Gideon dies at a good old age. After 40 years of ruling over the people, collecting their gold, relishing their accolades. And then he's buried in the tomb of Joash's father, and as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. Here's what's amazing about the Israelites. As soon as Gideon made that ephod and put it up in Ophrah, they flocked to Ophrah to worship his ephod. We don't even know the name of the God. As soon as Gideon dies, and with Gideon dies the God of Gideon, they go back to Baal. See, they're equal opportunity idolaters. 
They just go back and forth. They don't really care. Just, we're just looking for a God. And the whole time, Yahweh's up in heaven going, what about me? Why not me? Remember what I did for you? Remember all that I've done for you? But they're worshiping anything and everything other than him. And it says, the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. See, he was their deliverer, not Gideon. They did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. See, not only had they abandoned God, they had abandoned Gideon, this king that they set up and said, we want you to rule over, over us and your son to rule over us and your grandson to rule over us. No, they just walked away from him, him as soon as he died. And they were just worshiping Baal. And they'd even made another god named Baal Barith. Now, who's Baal Barith? And this is really important to understanding what's going on in this passage. Baal Barith literally means Lord of the Covenant. Baal means Lord. So they've made another god. Now, they didn't invent this god. This god had always existed. They just built an idol to this god. And they set up a temple to this god. And it's interesting that his name means Lord of the Covenant. They were already people of the covenant. But a covenant with who? Yahweh. And yet they choose now this God of the covenant who's not the God of the covenant. You see, the whole story is about them rejecting God as their king and as their leader. God told them in Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, our covenant, our unilateral or bilateral covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, if you keep my covenant. But what have they just done? They've now chosen a God called the Lord of the covenant. They've broken covenant with God. They're worshiping another God. So chapter 9, just look at this. Now, we're not going to cover the whole chapter. We're going to skip the middle section. We're going to do the front and the back. But just look what happens. Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, what's going on? Abimelech is the son of that concubine. He's a half Shechemite. He's got 70 brothers. Gideon has been the king. Somebody needs to take his place. Abimelech wants the job really bad. How bad? Well, he's going to kill to get it. So what happens? He goes to his family, the Shechemites, and he wins them over. He says, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also, I am your bone and your flesh. We're family. I need you to side with me. I need you to support me. And so his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, and they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of who? Baal Barith, the Lord of the Covenant. They're worshiping Baal Barith. And they give this money to him, and what does he do with it? He goes and hires worthless and reckless fellows. Never a good move. Okay, but he hires these worthless and reckless fellows and they follow him and he goes to his father's house at Ophrah and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. In other words, he sets up a stone and then one after another he executes them. It's a parade. It's a cleansing. Why? Because he wants to be king. How bad does he want to be king? He kills every one of his brothers except one, Jotham. 
The youngest son of Jeroboam runs away. But this guy has executed 70 of his siblings. Now, that's a pretty sad move from Gideon. Gideon had some flaws, but this is like egregious, right? He's taken it to a whole new level, and he's killed his brothers. But it's very reminiscent of what Gideon did, right? The whole story of Gideon that we looked at was all about him avenging his brothers who had been killed by the Midianite kings. Everything he did post-victory in the valley was Gideon trying to get back at the Midianites for having killed his brothers. And this term brothers appears over and over in chapter 9. He had even killed his Israelite brothers because they wouldn't give him food. He went into Penuel and he killed 1,000 Jews in, in order to avenge his, his rights as their leader. And his actions are going to catch up with him. He's dead now, but guess what? His actions have an afterlife. So do yours. And never forget that. What you do has long-term ramifications. What you say, how you act, the, the decisions you make now, long after you're gone, will carry on in the lives of your kids, your grandkids. And we all hate that thought, right? You ever noticed how your kids always pick up your worst traits? They never pick up your good ones, at least the ones you think are good. They always mimic the things you don't want them to mimic. And, and that's the reality of sin. Sin has an afterlife. Sin has a habit of continuing long after we're gone. And Gideon is finding that out. Even though he's dead and gone, his son is carrying on the torch that began with his father. See, here's an interesting note. Baal-berith, also called Elbereth in chapter, uh, verse uh, 45 of chapter 9, he's the supreme god of the Canaanites. He's the top dog. He's the Zeus of the Canaanites. According to legend, he had 70 sons. Isn't that interesting? How many sons did Gideon have? 70 sons. How many sons did Baal-berith have? 70 sons. And one of them was Baal. Baal, a god that also they worshipped, was one of the sons of Baal-bereth. I think what's going on here and what the author is trying to get us to understand is that there's a similarity between the god they're worshipping and the king they're worshipping or will be worshipping, Abimelech. See, according to Canaanite mythology, Baal was the son of El, El-bereth, the chief god, and Asherah, the goddess of the sea. Baal was considered the most powerful of all the gods, even though he was the son of the supreme god. Eclipsing El, who is seen as weak and ineffective. See, what you're going to see is here is Abimelech, who has always seen his dad as the king, and he thinks he's the best of the 70. He's the greatest king. He is better than his father, and he's obviously better than his brothers because he killed them all. He's more deserving. He becomes Baal in the story. He becomes God in the story. I'm God. I'm the greatest of all gods. I'm greater than my father who is weak and ineffective. See, he is killing or has killed 70 of his own brothers, the sons of his father. His very name means the king is my father. Now, don't tell me that Gideon didn't think he was a king because he names his son this. Who's the king? Him. 
And so Abimelech takes that seriously. He named me this. I'm supposed to be the next king, and I'm a better king than my father was. He was a weak king. He, he never took full advantage of all the power. He was content with a house and gold. I want everything. See, he's going to take Gideon's need for glory and gain, and it's going to take it to the next level. He's going to accentuate and accelerate all the flaws in his father. And this is a phrase that my wife used with me for years when our kids were growing up. What parents do in moderation, children do to excess. She actually made a T-shirt with it on it. <laughs> it's one of the only T-shirts in my closet she will not throw away. Now, why would my wife say that to me? When would she say that to me? When one of my kids did something or said something that was inappropriate, she'd go, you know, what parents do in moderation, children do to excess. Why is it my fault? Well, because usually it was. I'll give you an example. I remember walking home one day from, or walking in the door from work one day, and I was exhausted, and I, I just wanted to relax, and I walk into the kitchen. There's my wife with my youngest son, who was probably 12 at the time, and I could tell things are not going well. So I turned to walk out. I'm doing the, you know, the good dad thing. I'm just going to let them deal with it. And she goes, where are you going? I, I, w I was going in the den. She goes, no, you get in here. So I walk in, and I know, oh, gosh, this is not good. And he's all sheepish. He's just like, you know, he's in trouble. And she goes, tell, tell your dad what you just said. He goes, oh, I don't want to say it. She goes, no, you tell him what you said. He goes, well, I don't want to. And she goes, tell your father what you said. And so he says it. And what he had said was something very sarcastic to my wife. And here's what I said. You know, Hudson, it's all in the timing. <laughs> and as soon as those words came out of my mouth, I thought, oh, my gosh. What did I do? And she goes, what did you say? <laughs> and, I, you know, I'm, I'm like in overdrive going, oh, I got to get out of this. And I said, never talk to your mother like that again. You know, you should. And he goes, you do it all the time. <laughs> And then he walks out, and suddenly, I'm the one in trouble. <laughs> like He's like smiling, walking out of the room going, thanks, Dad. See, what we do in moderation, our kids do to excess. And it's true of, of Abimelech. He's going to take everything he saw in his father, he's going to accelerate it, accentuate it. And it says, all the leaders of Shechem came together, and they anoint him king. They make him their king. And then Jotham... The one son who got away from the massacre finds out about it, and he's going to deal with it. He's going to be upset about it, rightfully so, because the Shechemites have decided to make this guy, this murderer, their king. See, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. See, when you start playing God, when the Shechemites start playing God, and when Abimelech starts playing God, it never ends well. It never goes well. And so Abimelech rules over Israel for three years. It's interesting that the, you know, Samuel, the author, gives us this window of time that for three years this guy rules over Israel, not just the Shechemites, but all Israel, which means all Israel decided, okay, he's our king in spite of what he's done. And then verse 23, God enters the scene. God's always been there, right? 
God's been behind the scenes. He's totally aware. He knows what's going on. But in verse 23, we see him enter into the scene and do something. It says he sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. God enters the scene and deals with what's going on. Now, here's what I need you to understand. Nowhere in this passage, chapter 9, is, is there any indictment against him becoming king or them making him a king. Kingship is not the issue in this story. It's men playing God. It's men taking on the responsibility of God. That's the issue, and we'll see it more clearly in a second. So here's the summary. What's going on? We're going to skip over the center section of chapter 9 because in verses 5 through 21, Jotham finds out about his brother, the murderer, becoming king, and he confronts the people, and he tells them a fable, and the whole point of the fable is to say, you've made a really bad decision. You've chosen the wrong man. You've, you've done my father a disservice. You have elected a man to be king over you who doesn't deserve to be king. And so he pronounces a curse on them. Here's what he says. If you have not acted in good faith, which they haven't, then may fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leading citizens of Shechem. And may fire come out from the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. He's, he's issuing a curse. I think this curse comes directly from God because God's going to fulfill it as we'll see. So he rules for three years. God sends an evil spirit. See, God is not absent. He hasn't vacated the premises, and he is going to deal with Abimelech because Abimelech has made himself sovereign overall, and he's not. God is. See, Abimelech saw himself as the king. I have all the power. I have all the glory. I'm the rightful heir to my father's throne. But here's the interesting thing about his name. It could actually be translated, the divine king is my father. See, if he would have approached this, God is my father, God is my king, this would have gone a whole different direction. If you and I would live our lives with that attitude that God is my king, not me, our lives would take a whole different direction. But when we play God, when we want to be king, the master of our fate, the captain of our ship, we take it in places God never intended for it to go. See, the whole story is about the one true king, God Almighty. Gideon wanted the benefits of royalty without responsibility. He just liked the gold, the house, the accolades, but he didn't really want to rule. He didn't really want to take care of these people, but Abimelech did. Abimelech wanted everything, mainly power, and the people get peace. And as long as they get peace, they seem to be happy. But God has been totally left out of the equation, so God turns them against one another. So how does the story end? Doesn't end well, at least for Abimelech. Abimelech goes against the city, the city of Shechem. He captures the city. He kills everybody in it. And then he sows the city with salt after he burns it to the ground. And it's, it's a sign of a curse that it never be built again. Then he goes to this tower and he there's people hiding in the tower. And he tells the people to cut bundles and burn the tower. And they do. And they kill 1,000 more Jews. He's taken his father's life and he's emulated in ways that God never intended. And then what happens to Abimelech? So all these Shechemites are dying at the hand of Abimelech. Then Abimelech goes to yet another tower, tries to burn it down. Verse 53, a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Here we have another strong woman. 
like jail. Except this woman somehow takes a probably 50-pound stone all the way up to this tower, and she throws it down on top of the head of Abimelech, and she crushes his skull, but she doesn't kill him. And we know that because 54 says, he calls one of his armor bearers and says to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And so he kills him. He dies. Abimelech dies. And when the men of Israel saw that he was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned evil on Abimelech. He returns evil on the men of Shechem. God is dealing with what they've done, the evil that they have committed. But what's the evil? And this is important. Don't miss this. Here's the real point. It's not because he chose to be king, and it's not because they helped him become king. That's not the issue. They're playing God. See, God hates when men play God. God hates when I play God. He hates when you play God. And you play God when you make plans as if you are God and you leave him out and you don't consult him. When you take on power that was never given to you by God, when you justify your actions, your unjust, immoral actions as righteous and just, when God doesn't, you are becoming God. And there is no God but God. God will not share that with anyone. And you act as if there is no God. And here's what Psalm says about it. We'll close with this. Only fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their actions are evil. Not one of them does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God. But no, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. No one does good, not a single one. Why? Because they've chosen to be God. They've said there is no God. And you and I guys do it every day. So here's what I want you to talk about. Your first question. If I sat down with every one of you and asked, do you believe in God? You would say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. But what are some ways we live that sh in, in ways that we live that show that God doesn't exist? It's as if he doesn't exist because we make decisions without him. We get up and we never read the word. We don't pray. We don't talk to him. It's as if he doesn't exist and we live our lives apart from him. Secondly, the subhead of the lesson is when men play God, everyone loses would you agree with that statement? And if so, why? What's an example in your life where you've seen others suffer because you've played God and you're not a good God? You're a lousy God. Finally, take some time to discuss any ways in which you attempt to play God in your life. And then I would strongly ask you to close in prayer and just confess it. We're told in Scripture that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We all play God. Let's just admit it. Confess it. That's all confession is. And allow him to cleanse us from it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder that, Lord, when we play God, it never turns out well. When we act as if you don't exist because we ignore you, discount you, live our day without consulting you. Lord, we reap the whirlwind. We end up seeing things happen that you never wanted to happen in our lives, but they're necessary for us to learn that we make lousy gods. O open our eyes. I pray that the discussion time would be rich and deep and honest, and that, Father, you would show us how we act as if you don't exist, and we take over your role and play God. Because, Father, we know that's not what you have for us. You're our king. You're our sovereign. 
and only you know what is best for us. Father, bless this time. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.